Good to have you. Good to be here with you guys. You know, we're concluding this series um, called Centered. And the reason we want to do this series, it's only two weeks. Um, and today's obviously the last day. We're going to talk a lot more about Jesus in the weeks to come. Today's the last day of this uh, series called Centered. Here's why we want to talk about it. Is you can, you ever have those moments where you realize you're using the same language, but you might have a different definition for that language? Like I find this with grace a lot, by the way. Like there's a lot of times I'll use the word grace and then I hear somebody else talking about it. And I'm like, I think we see this really differently. I think we mean different things. Another one is Christ-centered. So I hear people say all the times, like, oh, I want to be Christ-centered, I want to be Christ-centered. And then you start to get into a conversation about it, and the way they're describing it or the way somebody articulates it, I'm not, I sometimes, sometimes I find myself going like, well, sort of, but no, I don't think that's what I'm meaning. And so since this is something so important for us as a church, like one of the key descriptors of us as a church, one of the key values that we would hold is that we want to be a Christ-centered church. That's, it's huge, guides our decisions, our actions, all this stuff. Rather than just assume we all kind of understand the same language, we want to talk about, and this is what we mean by that. This is what this can look like. There's a lot that we could say. I know that Glenn last week talked about this idea of of trusting in a relationship, like a a dynamic type of relationship with Jesus, even in the moments where you don't know what to do, trusting that he's doing something in you and through you, and actually having this kind of, like centering your life in Christ that way. Today, we're going to talk about this idea of when when we say Christ-centered, part of, a huge part of what we mean is seeing Jesus as our rabbi. And if, that, if you're like, wait, we're not a Jewish you know, congregation of people. I'm not asking you to be, but there's something really important for us to look at, really important for us to see here as we go to relate with Jesus. So uh, I, I have a dear friend that I've known for a very long time. And at one point in time, they were graduating high school, going into college. They had this moment that sometimes people graduate from high school, going to college have. Uh, And I don't know if you were this way or you knew somebody this way, but you know where you get to that spot where you're like, you know what, I need to make a life for myself or I want my life to count or to matter. And so there's a part where you start to look at this and you're like, so, you know, this is what I think about God and this is what I think about the world and this is what I think about life and this is what's right and true and who's coming with me? You know, like, have you ever, were you ever that person? Sometimes people do this in their 20s. Uh, This is where my friend was. He had this moment and he used the word. He said, I was fed up. And the word he used, he's like, I was fed up with, with living in such a way where I just wasn't taking any of this seriously and wasn't really living life seriously. And I wanted my life to matter. And I wanted to figure out what God wanted from me. And so he, he started reading this book. And this book was written by a particular pastor slash theologian. It was very popular at the time. And this book really got a hold of him, got a hold of his life. And I remember I had a conversation with him about it. I walked up to him at one point, hadn't seen him in a bit, and just said, hey, how you doing? And he handed me the book. And he said, Ryan, I want you to read this. And I said, uh, okay. And I started to grab the book from him. And then he didn't let it go. And he held it. And he like maintained eye contact with me. And he said, I want you to read it. And I was like, okay. Didn't realize that wasn't an option. All right. Sounds good. So took the book. You know, I'm like, apparently this is a serious thing. And he goes, you know, so many of us are just wasting our lives and happily living in our sin. And God wants more from us than that. And you ever have that moment with somebody where you recognize the intensity in their voice and language means this is going to be a monologue and not a conversation. You ever had that? This was that particular moment where I'm like, I'm probably just going to ask him questions about what he thinks. I'm not going to say a bunch of stuff here because that's how this moment is. I looked at him and I said, okay, so based on your opinion, like what is it that you think God wants from us right now? 
And he looked and goes, oh no, it's not my opinion. And he's emphatic, he's really assertive about all this stuff. He says, it's not my opinion, it's in the Bible. And he said, he wants our complete obedience so that we can bring him glory. We are utterly depraved and without the blood of Christ, our lives are nothing more than filthy rags to God. And I said, okay, that's a heck of a worldview. Like that was my thought, right? Wow. And I had lots of questions, but again, this isn't going to be a conversation. So I said, okay, so what do you want to do with this newfound realization? And he said, well, I want to tell people that they are depraved so they can see just how depraved they are so that they can know that they're sinners who are going to hell so that they can need Jesus. And I said, okay, and how do you want to do that? And he said, I'm going to preach on the train. We were in Chicago at the time. And I thought he was crazy. And what he would do is he would go get on the L, which is the train that runs all through the city in Chicago, and he'd get on this thing, and he'd get on, walk in. The moment the doors would shut and the whole train would fill up with people, he'd stand up in the aisle, because he had a captive audience, and he'd get out his Bible, and he'd open to the book of Jeremiah. Now, if you're not super familiar with your Bibles, Jeremiah is a book that was written in a season when uh, the Israelites had, had essentially lost touch with God, right? Had turned to a bunch of other stuff, all these things, and the Babylonian Empire had swept in, conquered them, and then they were being hauled off to live in exile. Jeremiah has all kinds of judgment, all kinds of sorrow and lament. There's good passages, amazing passages in Jeremiah about the new covenant and prophetic future, all this cool stuff. There was a lot of intense language. He would open up the book of Jeremiah and preach prophetic judgment upon all these people in this train, screaming and yelling at all of them. And then would ask them, you know, try to tell them that they were sinners and everybody was going to hell and who wants to accept Jesus? And he would do this. And if you're thinking like, wow, that's crazy. It was. He wouldn't just do this on any train. He would do this on every train. And some trains aren't in awesome places or neighborhoods. And some moments aren't going to have people on the train that are super happy to be yelled at by somebody while they're sitting there. He had a gun pulled on him on multiple occasions. There were times where we're like, dude, you can't ride that line at this hour and say those things. Like, you can't do that. But he would. And he'd stand up and he'd scream and he'd yell and he'd just do all this stuff. Eventually, after like a year of this, he stopped. Did this for like a year and he stopped. And I got to have another conversation with him again. And I said, you know... What, you've been doing this for like a year and really intense about it. What, why'd you stop? And he said, well, because nobody ever accepts Jesus. And then I looked at him very sarcastically and I was like, ooh, shocking. That's what I said. And I was just like, it's weird. You know, you screaming and yelling at a group of people who don't know why you're screaming and yelling at them, why they didn't see you as like the greatest person in the world to say, you know, I'd love to hear what you have to say and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Like I was just kind of sarcastic with him. And then he laughed and he said, yeah, I got a little intense. And I said, yeah, you, you got a lot of intense and it was, that was kind of a crazy endeavor that you did. And I said, I'm just glad that you didn't get shot. And then he said, me too. And apparently he had some very crazy experiences on the train. I want you to think about this as you hear this story. At a time when this gentleman was trying to figure out what his life was, like where he was supposed to go with this, who God was, how God related to him, how God saw other people. You know when you start to ask the big questions and you try to come to answers to figure out what you want your life to be about? At that particular time, he turned to a certain pastor slash theologian, author, and identified this person as his teacher. And he began to follow the path that this particular human being laid out. He began to follow this person. And as a result of that, my friend became more intense more judgmental. My friend began shouting at people who had no idea where they're being shouted at, but he felt justified and right because he was adhering to a certain doctrine and following the teachings of a certain leader, so he ultimately knew he was doing the right thing. I sat with him just a few years ago. Everything I'm describing was a while ago. I sat with him just a few years ago, 
and you wouldn't recognize this. Whoever the person you're picturing in your head is, I bet it's not the person I'm talking about. He hates conflict, is super nervous about conflict of any kind, and really wants people to like him. That's this guy, <laughs> right? And, and his life looks so incredibly different now, like so incredibly different. And, and so I just found myself taken aback where I was like, and I asked him the question, I said, how did the person I had that conversation with in Chicago end up being the person that's talking to me right now? Like what happened in between these two points in your timeline here? And he looked at me and he said, you know, back then, I was following all of these pastors and studying all of this doctrine. And he goes, and what's weird is I could make sense of all of it. Like all the blocks stacked, all the puzzle pieces came together. And I knew, he, he's like, if, I, if we got in an argument about it, I knew how to argue it and I could be right. In the end, I, could, I, like, I knew how to win that argument because it was rational and this was what was true. And then he said, but the more I lived it, the less I looked like Jesus. What a powerful statement. But the more I lived it, the less I looked like Jesus. And he said, the more I lived it, the more I looked like a really angry and unloving version of Paul. I thought that was really interesting. So I told him, you know, I always thought you actually looked and sounded a lot like the different teachers and preachers and people that you were following at that point in time. He said, yeah, I was, but they aren't Jesus either. And then he said, and deep down, though I, I knew how to be right, I felt like I was wrong. And I was betraying myself that whole time. I just didn't know what else I was supposed to do. Powerful story. Because it's the story of a person's real life. Friends, it matters who you follow. I want you to know that. I want you to feel that. I want you to see that. And I want you to remember it. It matters who you follow. This is especially true when it comes to God. It is, this is especially true when it comes to God. Because you're not just talking about a subject, you're talking about the way you perceive the creator of all life. You're talking about the way that creator then perceives you. You're talking about what your life then looks like and what it means to live a good and beautiful and meaningful life. You're talking about salvation. You're talking about uh, just how we view and treat other people. You're talking about all of it when we talk about God. Who you follow matters because it's easy to wander off target when you follow the wrong teacher. It's really easy. When you model your life after the wrong teacher, you can end up becoming the wrong person. You can feel right and justified and be so incredibly wrong. You can end up learning to be a person who knows how to be right. And in the end, look less and less like Jesus. Look less and less like what you know in your heart to be true and create so much wrong and hurt in other people's lives. This is why we are spending so much time at the very least these last two weeks, and are going to continue to do so, saying this is what it means to be Christ-centered. This is what it means as a church, as people, to center our lives, ourselves, all of it, our spiritual experience, everything on Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is our leader. Jesus is our teacher, right? Jesus is who we follow. Jesus is what we base our life on because he was the Christ and is the Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The Christ come into this world that we might see him, know what God looks like, and follow him. We want to be a church who lives our lives centered on Jesus because it matters who you follow, and nothing but Jesus is going to do here. This is huge. And this is specific. Like, it's not just a, well, that's one good thing, and then there's lots of other good things. This is core. This is central. And I say this, I want you to think about what we're not. You know, that means, if we're a Christ-centered church, do you know what that also then means? Is it means well, it means we're not a doctrine-centered church. At the core of who we are and what we're doing, what you won't find is that our primary thing that we center ourselves on is doctrine. No, because it's not Jesus. 
right? It's, it's in Jesus that we center our life. It means that we're not a tradition-centered church. There's beautiful traditions, right? We could go back. This church has been around for, what, 60 years? We, we could go back and say, what is the tradition in this church or what's the denominational tradition or all this stuff? Tradition's a good and beautiful thing, but it's not the center of who we are. It's not the thing we seek to base our lives upon. It's not what this church anchors itself in. I'll even say this, and I, I bet you this is going to make you cringe just a minute. We're, I'd even go so far as to say we are not a Bible-centered church. Some of you are like, ah. caveat. Let me say what I mean by that before you go run off. <laughs> what I'm not saying is that we don't believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. What I'm not saying is that the Bible doesn't, isn't, doesn't have authority in our lives and isn't good and beautiful in this way and that we don't value and revere it and teach from it and hold, hold things. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is even the Bible itself is what? It's that which points to someone, isn't it? The Bible's not an end game unto itself. The Bible's not the thing we center on. Why? Because even the Bible seeks to keep pointing us to center our lives, center our church on what? Jesus Christ to be Christ-centered. I mean, this is so big. This is so central. This is who we are. Friends, we are Christ-centered church because nothing but Jesus will do. Last week, Glenn spoke to this idea of, and, and that means having this dynamic relationship with faith. And like I said, we're gonna talk about Jesus as our rabbi. Okay, Jesus as our rabbi. Again, I'm not asking you to go be a Jewish person. I'm not asking you to embody all of the things or all of that stuff, but Jesus was a rabbi. Do you know that? I don't know that many of us have thought about that. We think like he's the savior, he's our teacher, he's all these characteristics. Do you know that Jesus, when he lived and walked among us on this earth, was a first century Jewish rabbi? Do you know the number one name that the text gives to Jesus? Rabbi. Your Bibles will often read teacher. Let me tell you why. The word rabbi comes from the Hebrew word that means my master right? The ancient word, it's this word that means my master. Well, by the time you get to the first century in Aramaic, Aramaic is the spoken language, not Hebrew at that particular point. When Jesus, the disciples and people were talking, they were largely speaking Aramaic, but the written language of that day was in Greek. So the word rabbi in Aramaic means a combination of my master and teacher. It's this idea of somebody who knows something about God, somebody who, in the way that you see them, they, they've learned what it is to follow God, how to interpret and understand the scriptures, apply these things to our life. They have a way about it to the degree that you would say, I want them to be my primary influencer. I want them to shape me in this thing, and I want them to teach me. I would go and be their disciple. This is what that word meant. And when it gets translated into the Greek text, oftentimes it's the word didaskalos, which just means teacher because that's the word that the Greeks would use. But I, I need you to know, when they say teacher in your Bible, when it was spoken, it would have been in Aramaic and they would have been looking at Jesus and the word they would have said is rabbi. Do you know that your Bibles refer to Jesus as teacher or as rabbi over 20 times in the Gospels? This, Jesus is called rabbi or teacher more than any other name in the Gospels. Refer to this again and again. Why? because he was a first century Jewish rabbi. It's what he did. It's what he was. And people recognized him this way. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 says, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Rabbi, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This man was a rich young ruler. He was a person with authority who was in charge of other people. And so this person of power, this person of authority, when he looked at Jesus, what title did he give him? How did you recognize him? Teacher, rabbi right? This is the name he gives him. Luke chapter 19, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, 
Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Pharisees were religious leaders, many of whom were rabbis themselves. So this group of religious leaders who are also rabbis, when they look at Jesus and they want to call him by title, what do they refer to him as? Rabbi, teacher. Luke chapter 20, verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees. These are religious leaders. Once again, different sect, but religious leaders. Those who deny that there is a resurrection, they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, this passage goes on and there's lots of beautiful things there. I wanted you to see it because this other group of religious leaders who are well-to-do, influential people who had people following them, when they looked at Jesus, what did they recognize him as? A rabbi, as a teacher. Why? Because Jesus was a first century Jewish rabbi. People in authority referred to him as this. People in who other rabbis referred to him this way. People beyond just his disciples. I say this because I want you to know it was more than a nickname. It was an occupation. It was a way of life. It's who he was. This is so important for us to understand. You're like, I get it. Why do you keep saying this over and over again? Here's why. There are so many moments in your gospels that use this understanding of of Jesus as a rabbi where he speaks in a very normal way that a rabbi would speak and it gets lost on us. And so consequently for us, we wanna be what? Disciples of Jesus, don't we? In the end of Matthew, when Jesus' last words in in that text, right? The very last thing he says to everybody is he says, go therefore and make what? disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Go to all nations and do this. Make disciples. And so you and I, we sit here in this room because we are now what? Disciples. Well, if we're disciples, who's our rabbi? See, this becomes really, really important. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit this morning about this whole process between discipleship and rabbi. If you don't like history, (laughs) sorry, Um, but Here we go. So uh, in the first century, people began memorizing the first five books of the Bible from a very young age. It was required for every male. It was optional for every female. And so as people were growing up, usually by the time they were 10, they had the bulk of this memorized. If you are a younger person in here, I want you to think about your Bible for just a second. Or actually all of you. Have you ever looked at your Bible and thought, that's a really thick book? Right? Have you ever looked at your Bible and upon it being a really thick book where you're just like, God wants me to read all this? Like, really? Is there like a Cliff Notes version? Is there something else? Because it's a really big book. That large book is composed of two different sections. There's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. Of those two sections, the Old Testament makes up 70 to 80% of the entire body of content. Meaning the Old Testament, huge, right? Really big chunk of that, of that Old Testament. The Torah, the first five books of the law in the Old Testament make up roughly a quarter of it. That is a massive chunk of that Bible. I want you to imagine that each of us had to have that thing memorized by the time we were 10. Some of you guys are like, I don't know, I have a hard time on spelling words. I know, this is huge, right? This is what this would have been. And you would have known this. This is why they're always just quoting random passages of scripture. And you're like, did everybody just know that? (laughs) Yeah, they did. Because they all had to memorize this. Now, if you had an aptitude for this, if you were good at it, or you had a heart for it, or you wanted to go further with it, you could keep going. At 10 years old, you had the option. 
So you either didn't have an aptitude for it, you went back home, you learned a trade, right? Like carpentry or fishing or whatever all the different things were that were there. And you jumped in with your family to help sustain the family and to, to keep things going. If you had an aptitude for it, you kept studying and you, you kept learning from schools of theology and things. And then you finally got to the age that you were like 14 or 15. At 14 or 15, you had to make a very significant decision. At 14 or 15, the decision you had to make was who will I approach to ask them to be my rabbi? You would approach them and you would ask them this question. Now, every rabbi had to determine if you could cut it. And here's what that means. See, every rabbi had a different way of interpreting. I mean, there were schools of thought and all this stuff, but like, it's not like just to be a rabbi, there was like, here's rabbi school and there's only one school of thought and this is exactly what everybody does. It's not even that way today, guys. Every rabbi had different ways of interpreting the Bible. Every rabbi had different commandments based off what they thought was the right way to to read the text and to embrace passages and to, to live for God. This series of commandments and this way of approaching the Bible and this method of interpretation, this whole way of operating in in terms of relating to God was called the rabbi's yoke. If you don't know what the word yoke means, think of it. uh, The best the imagery that that it comes from is. It's the thing you put over oxen. You know, if you imagine like two oxen being like pulling a carriage or something like that, and they've got those two huge wood pieces that are over the top of them that allow you to steer the oxen, that's a yoke. Big, heavy, cumbersome, and burdensome, but it allowed a master to direct them. Do you see this? So a yoke is essentially the series of commandments, the ways of interpreting, the entire way of approaching God and life that each rabbi held. That was referred to as their yoke. All that stuff you had to follow. Some rabbis were exceedingly difficult and it took a ton of discipline to follow them. And there were lots and lots of this and there's lots and lots of tradition. This is why Jesus says the following words in Matthew 11. And we miss this when we miss that he was a Jewish rabbi. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27 through 30. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. What he's saying here is he goes, I know the fullness of God. And if you want to know what God is like, just come look at me. If you want to know what God is like, just come follow me. Just come experience this through me. Verse 28, he says, come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 29, take my what? Yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus says this, he says this when there are a ton of other rabbis and rabbinic traditions and things on the scene. There are a ton of other people saying, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to obey. This is what you need to follow. This is what it looks like. This is how you interpret the text. Some people came up with multiple rules about all of that stuff. And there were like thousands of rules and things and all this stuff. When Jesus says, no, 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 wait. Is this rabbi, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, this peace won't weigh you down. This won't rest like a heavy burden upon you. This would have been like a breath of fresh air amidst all the complexity that existed around him. Every rabbi had a yoke. And when you were 14 or 15, and you went and you asked a rabbi to become their disciple, what you were essentially saying is, I would like to take your yoke upon me. I wanna follow you and I wanna become more like you. Will you teach me? That rabbi then would sit you down and it wasn't just like, oh, well, you're here, so yes, let's see how you do. The rabbi then had a decision to make. It was, can you hack it? 
Can you do this? Did they believe that you were capable of seeing the world the way they saw the world, walking in the world the way they walked in the world, of being like them? And if the answer was yes, you became a disciple. If the answer was no, you went back home and you learned to trade. And your journey in that moment ended. If you became a disciple, your life changed like this. Because you left the life that you were living and your entire life now became about following this rabbi around, watching him seeing how he sees people, how he loves people, how he engages people, paying attention to how he interprets the text, listening to the way he teaches and what he does, and paying attention to all of these different things. He became your teacher. You became his student. Right now, though, think in your own heads. When I say, I want you to imagine teachers and students, where do you immediately go? School, right? You think of a classroom setting, because that's what we think of when we think of like a teacher-student dynamic. What we think of is there's this place that you go to for a set amount of hours a day, and there's a person in that place, and they're going to lecture you for a period of time, and you're going to take notes about that and write down the important things, and then they're going to give you a homework assignment, and then there's going to be a test where you either have to circle the right things or say the right answers so that you can show that you memorize the right material and regurgitate it back so that you can get an A, right? Like that's generally how the whole thing works. That's what we think. This couldn't be more different than the first century rabbi, uh, rabbi-disciple relationship. There wasn't a classroom. There was only life. And it wasn't this thing that you did with just part of your life. You literally left the life that you had. And from this point forward, you, be- you became an apprentice. That's a better word for this, by the way. It's looking at it as like it's apprenticeship. It's watching the master execute their trade and their skill and their thing in such a way that you learn and become more and more like them so that you can do the same thing. You know, one way that I'm learning this or I've started to go like, oh, it's kind of like that is through snow skiing. Snow skiing is one of my favorite things on the planet. It's like one of my absolute, it might be my most favorite thing to do. Uh, And the person I love to ski the most with is my dad. I do. He didn't teach me to ski. He tried when I was a little kid. And then I just threw my body down on the ground. I cried a bunch, like the day did not go well. So he was like, I'm checking you into the ski school. And they taught me the basics. And then once I learned the basics, I started to ski a little bit. And do you know who I've spent more time in this life skiing with than anyone else? My dad. Do you know who I've had more conversations about skiing with than anyone else? My dad. Do you know who I've had more moments? The entire sphere that just is snow skiing. Like I've had more interaction and moments and time spent with my dad than with anybody else. And so these last couple years, we started to notice we ski really similarly. Like, and I thought that just meant that's how everybody does it. It's not. You know what I'm realizing is not everybody likes the way that I ski or that we ski. Here's why. We both ski really fast, like averaging between 45 and 55 mile an hour fast. And if I could go faster, I would. Like, that sounds like a blast. For me, and my dad's the same way, for me, I learned, we learned that the, the, you know you're, do, you're in the sweet spot for snow skiing when you're just on the verge of being out of control to the point that you've got enough fear that you pee a little bit. Like, that's the good space to be in. If that's you, you're doing it right, right? That's what this is. We love to do, we don't, like, we're not good at this. If I ever ended up in the trees, I'd die. Like, that's how that works. But, but I love to ski this particular way. Uh, What's also fascinating is we both believe that stopping for lunch is a giant waste of time and that you should pack granola bars in every nook and cranny so that you can sustain yourself throughout the day because why would you pause something beautiful to go waste your time, 
right? This is what, what we think. And so we do this and we eat on the lift. And then we know, here's the other piece, we know that the day is over, that you have successfully skied an entire day when your quads are no longer able to support your body because they are cramped and locked up and you can't bring yourself to get on the lift anymore or the whole place is simply shut down. That's how you know you're successful. This is what I think of when I think of skiing. And I thought everybody thought this way. And they don't. Some of you are like, yeah, we know, we're them. Like, I, I get it. So I, I went skiing a few years ago with somebody. And after like three runs of this, where we're just, you know, booking down the mountain, they paused and they're like, do you think maybe we could go slower and go, go do something different? And I was like, are you okay? Is something wrong? Is everything fine? And they were like, no. And I was like, oh, okay. So I went and I skied with them. It was super boring. <laughs> And then, and then we got to lunch and they were like, oh, let's go into the lodge and, and eat for a little bit. Like there's some stuff in there that sounded really good. I want to see what it's like. And I was like, are you, like, you cramping up? You need some energy? You're not good? And they're like, no, I just want to see what it's like. And I said, okay. So we sat in there for like an hour. And then we finally got back out to go ski. And I'm like, okay, lifts close at four. Like we, let's go do this. And then two o'clock rolled around and they were like, you know, I feel like I came everything, I did everything I came here to do. I think I'm done. Like let's, you, you want to pack up? And I looked at them and I was like, you need to go repent. Like, do you know, like, th that's what I thought. Why? Why do I think this way? Well, I'm starting to realize it's because I have a very different rabbi and carry a very different yoke. Over time, I just have, I don't know, absorbed this. I've embraced this. I've learned it in subtle ways to where now this is just kind of who I am and everything else seems crazy to me. This is more akin to what it's like to have a Jewish rabbi and be the disciple of a Jewish rabbi. It's the time spent. It's the relating to. It's the modeling after. It's the things you directly learned and the things you didn't even know you learned. But over time, what happens is you start to become more and more like the rabbi that you have been following, right? This is how a disciple learned from the rabbi. They followed right behind them. They watched what they did. They listened to what they said. Observed how they lived, how they interacted with others. Do you know this is what Jesus' disciples did? They followed him for three years, you guys. Three years watching him go from town to town, place to place, all the interactions, all the people, all the moments. Think of all the things that they would have learned. And the goal over time was that they would become like their rabbi, right? So that they one day could be a rabbi, like their rabbi. Friends, if you want to live a Christ-centered life, Really simply put, it means becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. When I say that, what I'm not talking about is salvation. That's a whole other conversation. None of this, as far as today goes, is about salvation. How are you saved? Let's just be really clear. Through the grace of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins and being risen to new life. That's what that is. Do you have to do anything to inherit that? No, that's the great gift of God. It's simply yours to receive and to accept. This isn't that conversation. This is about, okay, then what? How do I have a life? What do I do? How do I engage this thing? It's called discipleship. Becoming more, it's this process of following your rabbi as you seek to become more and more like Christ. Because you have to or you won't be loved? No, you have all of that. That's all firm and secure. Because this is what a good and beautiful life that puts God on full display looks like. Jesus is the most captivating thing there is. It's taking on his yoke. It's following behind him and trying to become more like him. The good news is, is it's not a thousand rules. It's not a thousand things. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He said that from the very beginning. 
But this is what this looks like. It's trusting his power, his teachings, his way of loving you, his way of loving others, and allowing that to transform your life little by little, day by day, whether you know it or not, so that in the end, you take on more and more the likeness of Jesus Christ. Because that's a good and beautiful gift for this world. Do you know, in the first century, you could tell whose rabbi, like which disciple followed which rabbi just by observing the way the disciple lived? You could look at their life and you go, you know, based on the way they live and the way they engage and all this stuff, like they follow that rabbi. This is who that person is. Or the way they do this and the way they model their lives after this, the words coming out of their mouth, the way they treat other people, the way they interpret that passage of scripture. Oh, they follow that rabbi. You know the truth is that you can still do the same thing today. I like to think that we are all disciples, whether we like to know it or not. It's just a question of who we follow. Everybody's following something or someone. So I wonder, if people were to look, if you were to take a person aside and say, you know, I I bet you've had a lot of interactions with Christians in your life here in America, just over time, and I want you to just take a snapshot of of a couple of moments or things in your head of, of what you've seen, and based off of what you've observed, who's rabbi? Like, what rabbi were they following? If you were to ask that question, who's their rabbi? I wonder if in this particular day and age they would come up with the answer, liberalism or conservatism. Think about it. I wonder if they'd say CNN or Fox News. I wonder if they'd say Trump or Biden. I wonder if they'd say this podcaster or this famous celebrity. I wonder if they would say this social media influencer or this self-help guru or this fitness expert. Or even beyond that, I wonder if they would say this famous pastor or this writer. Or maybe they don't even say a person at all. Perhaps they'd say this tradition or that doctrine, or that denomination. There's a whole world of things that they could say if we were really honest to it. Not based off what we speak, but based off what they observe, right? What would they say? Who's our rabbi? See, this is problematic. This, here's why. The problem with all of those things that I just listed out, whether you believe that they're good, bad, wrong, right, all the things, the problem with all of them, every single one of those things, is that none of those things have the power to transform your heart from the inside out. They don't. None of those things have the power over life and over death. None of those things have the power to give you forgiveness and grace and love and compassion and offer you new life in a way that, in a way that declares you children of the Most High God. None of those things ultimately transform who you are and give you a deep and meaningful life like Jesus Christ does. So this matters in a deep way. Jesus is our rabbi. Friends, there's only one person who's worthy of making your rabbi. And I mean this in the deepest of levels. There's only one person worth basing your life on, worth modeling your life after, and it is Jesus, in whom there is life, in whom we have our very breath, our beginning and our end, the Son of the Almighty God, friends. Do you see how powerful this is? This is such an important thing to articulate. You can't be a disciple and not have a rabbi. We are all disciples of something. The question is, who are we following? What are we centered in as Casas? is this unique church here in Tucson, Arizona, or Valley, whatever, right? As Casa's church, our desire is to be a church who is centered in Jesus Christ. And when we mean that, when we say that, what we mean is Jesus is our rabbi. 
We do, and he is our and we are his disciples. And so we want to be a church that looks more and more like Jesus with each passing day because we're following him as best as we can, and we're trusting him in the moments that we, we don't know what to do and we don't know what to turn or what to teach or how to lean into something, and because we're learning from him and because we're loving other people like him and we're trusting that all of that becomes transformative in a way that looks more and more like Christ as an entire church. This is our heart, and this is really important because there's a lot of confusion out there, right? There's a lot of confusion about what Jesus looks like. Do you know this? Jesus, God, Jesus is what God looks like. Do you know this? The Bible's really clear on this. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. Don't go have semantic arguments. Don't go, don't, don't go do a bunch of other stuff. Just start with Jesus. Jesus is what God looks like. And there's a lot of confusion over this. There's a lot of people in our culture, people around us. There's people in your own lives, friends, that are still looking and going like, well, I don't really know what God looks like. And I don't really know who God is. And I don't really know how this whole thing works. And it's because at one point in time, they grew up with an experience where people were following a rabbi that taught something about what God was. And they're looking and going, if that's who God is, I don't want anything to do with him. Or there's a group of people that read a certain text and quoted a couple passages of scripture, but they did it without first starting with the eyes, the heart, the lens of their rabbi, Jesus Christ. And when they quoted that thing out, it turned ugly and weird. And now consequently, people are like, I don't know who God is. Do I listen to that voice? Do I follow that person? Does it look like this? If, if you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus Christ. The world needs more disciples who follow Jesus as their rabbi so that we can create the clearest picture possible of the most beautiful thing we hold dear. And do you realize that is a precious and beautiful gift that you get to give to the world around you? And it's not me saying, so do better. <laughs> it's not. Jesus is in you. He loves you. He wants good things for you. He wants to love you forward as you lean into faith and trust in him. He wants to be your rabbi just Take on his yoke, which is easy. Take off your burden, for his is light. This is a beautiful thing, friends, and it's a gift to the world. He's meant to be our rabbi. Do you know Paul even speaks to this? That we're to be disciples of Jesus and nobody else? Paul speaks to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 12 through 13, he says, Paul says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Cephas is another name for the apostle Peter. Or I follow Christ. All of these people are rabbis. All of these people are teachers. Verse 13, Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you even baptized in the name of Paul? What Paul's saying is, don't get confused about who your rabbi is. And he's saying, it's not even me. He goes on after this to go, man, I'm thankful I didn't baptize most of you, so we don't even have to have confusion about me. Just keep focused on Jesus. Keep staying centered on Jesus. He's your teacher. He's your rabbi. I'm just pointing the way. Amidst all the voices around you, don't forget who your rabbi really is, friends. If, you, if we want to be a Christ-centered church where Jesus is our rabbi, I know there's a myriad of ways that we could you know, practically engage that. I wanted to offer you two of them today. And I think they're both really important. So I'm going to take just a moment to do that. The first is this. If you want to be Christ-centered in your life, help this be a Christ-centered church, do this. Let Jesus' interpretation of Scripture become your interpretation of Scripture. I'm going to say that again because this one is so important. Let Jesus' interpretation of Scripture become your interpretation of Scripture. One of the biggest jobs that a rabbi had was to teach their disciples how to interpret the Scriptures, how to interpret 
the Bible. Now, when we use the word interpretation, it wasn't just, it was way more than just like how to make sure you pass the test because you said that this doctrine was this thing and you answered the right answers. The Jewish understanding of interpretation is that you would wrestle with something, you would learn something in such a way that you then understood its depth and meaning in a way that you could process it and implement it in your life. Interpretation started with a text and ended with the output in your life. It was the whole process of that thing. This is what interpretation looked like. Rabbis were less concerned with your ability to say the right answer than your ability to truly understand the meaning of a text. This is why Jesus, as a first century rabbi, annoys me sometimes. And if you cringe over that, just being honest, like there's moments where everyone asks Jesus these direct questions and he's like, well, let me tell you a story about a man with a field. And you're like, can you just answer his question? Because this is how we operate. Jesus isn't concerned with their ability or our ability to regurgitate the right answer. He's concerned with our ability to understand the depth and meaning of the text and then live it out in our lives. This is what interpretation looks like. This is huge. Now, when a disciple was hanging out with their rabbi, and if, you're, if you've gotten tired, tune back in. This part's really important. When a disciple was hanging out with their rabbi and they were trying to interpret a text, and the disciple would make an interpretation or say, I think this is what it means and this is what we should do with it and this is how this looks. The rabbi, if they got it correctly, would look at the disciple and he would say, you are correct. You have fulfilled the law. That's the exact phrase. You have fulfilled the law. If they got it wrong, so if they said something and the rabbi was like, I don't think you understand what this means, the rabbi would then look at the disciple and say, no, you have abolished the law. This is what the rabbis would say. This is just tradition, guys. This is huge for us to remember, and here's why, because Jesus said this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is Jesus using rabbinic language. This is really huge. When he says you've abolished, I have come not to abolish the law. When we read this, just as like modern American hears, you know what we always think? I didn't come to do away with all that stuff. I came to, to like put the icing on the cake of all of that stuff, right? I didn't, I didn't come to erase all of it. I came to fulfill it in the way that we think of it as being fulfilled. All Jesus is saying here, he's using classic rabbinical language. Do you know what he's saying? He's going, I didn't come to be a misinterpretation of the Old Testament or a disregard of the things that were said there. I have come to tell you what all of that meant. I have come to show you what all of that actually is and looks like. And he's, so it's essentially Jesus saying, if you want to know what the Old Testament is getting at, start with me and let me interpret it for you. Now you may look and go, okay, so what does that mean? How do we even do that? Here's one example. You ever read through the Old Testament and you thought to yourself, well, that got weird, right? Have you ever found yourself opening up to one of the prophets and being like, wow, that was a lot of crazy language and different things. Like, is that what God wants me to do? I and mean, what am I supposed to learn from that? Or is there something here for me? You ever take a deep dive into Leviticus or Deuteronomy and you read all these crazy things and you're like, am I really not supposed to touch dead people? I mean, I wasn't planning on it, but should I? Like, I don't, I'm not quite sure. Or have you ever read all these other passages where you're like, wait, is that the heart of God? Is this what God wants me to do? Is this what he wants me to follow? Is this still true? and it gets super confusing and everybody wants to argue about it. Have you ever done that? Just me? Right? So if you just start with the text itself and you go, you know what? I'm just going to interpret it the way that I see it and this is how it is. You can go about a thousand different directions. Years ago, there's a group of people here that read this and then looked at some New Testament stuff and were like, see, God wants every woman to have her head covered. And them and a whole group of people left this church because they believed that the way to interpret that text was this way. 
and they left. There, this happens all of the time. You can go a hundred different directions, but do you know what happens if you say, wait, I'm going to let Jesus be my rabbi, and I'm going to let him interpret the text for me, and you go back? Do you know what happens then? Maybe you turn to a chapter in Matthew where somebody looks at Jesus and says, what's the most important commandment in all the law and all the prophets? And then Jesus has the audacity to say, actually, I'm going to give you two of them, and this sums up all of it. All of it can be summed up in this way. All of it distilled down into just these two things. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you also love yourself. Which means in that moment, he says, all the law, all the prophets can be distilled down into this thing. Which means if your reading of the Old Testament leads you to do anything different, then love the Lord your God while also loving the people around you, while also simultaneously loving yourself, then you're abolishing the law. You have missed the point. You're doing it wrong. Circle back. And look at how Jesus interprets the passage. If you find yourself reading the New Testament and you read the words of Paul, and because of the way you're reading the words of Paul, you're treating other people and you're engaging other people in ways that you're like, well, Jesus was that way, but I'm following Paul now. You, you're abolishing the text, friends. For, to use a rabbinic expression, circle back. And read it through the lens of Jesus. Let Jesus become your interpreter. The Bible is that which points us to Jesus so that we might know exactly what the Father looks like, so that we might have relationship with God. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. And he says, follow these, three, these two things and you're going to get it. Follow these two things and you get the entire thing. You get the point. See, one practical way, but this is huge, friends. And here's the last one and I'll be very quick. Let Jesus' way of approaching life become your way. If you want to live a Christ-centered life, if we want to be a Christ-centered church, let Jesus' way of approaching life become your way. Here's what I would love for you to do, and I mean this sincerely, and I know I've gone a little long, but just hang with me, I'm almost done. Right? I would love for you to take some time in this next season of life and read through the Gospels. You don't have to read through all of them, pick one. And I would recommend that you start with John, but you can read any one that you want. They're all great. <laughs> I like them. Right? Start with the Gospels. And here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to open that up and read it like some ancient text where you're like, well, let's decipher the meaning of this thing. I don't want you to open that up like a spiritual handbook where you're like, okay, now let's just see the rules and things that God has for me to do. I don't even want you to read it up maybe the way you read the Bible when you were younger or the way I did where I would just kind of open it up and be like, what do you have to teach me today, God? And just kind of start reading the thing, you know? I want you to read in a very specific way. And this is a challenge to each of you. I want you to go and I want you to read through the gospels so that you can take a front row seat to the life of Jesus Christ and pay attention to your rabbi. And I want you to ask yourself a series of questions. I want you to pay attention to some things. I want you to pay attention to how he treated people because he's your rabbi. How do you treat them? I want you to pay attention to how he seemed to view people. I want you to pay attention to what he did. Pay attention to what he didn't do. Pay attention to what he said, but also pay attention in those moments to what he didn't say. When Jesus speaks, how does it impact the people that he's speaking to? What result does it yield? When Jesus does something, what's the result of what he did? How are people left in those moments? How do people respond to those things? Who was it that he got angry with? Who was it that he had mercy on? Who was it that was repulsed and repelled by him? And who was it that drew near? And as you go to read through all of these moments, simply studying and following your rabbi, just looking with a front row seat to see who Jesus is and what he did, I want you to ask one final very important question. And it's this, as a disciple of Jesus, based off of this, how will I imitate my rabbi in my life right now? What will I take upon me? 
What will I live out? Not so that you can be amazing, not so that you can be saved, not so that you can be worthy, not so that you can be loved. Those things are all not conditioned upon you. God's dishing it out, and you are good so that you can live a good and beautiful, meaningful life that reflects Jesus Christ and does amazing things as a gift to this world, friends. Because he's your rabbi. I'm gonna end with this. We get a front row seat, not just to kind of wonder, but to see what God looks like in the flesh to see how he treated people, to see how he engaged people. That is such a good and beautiful gift. Jump into it. Follow him. Let him be your rabbi. And if you're wondering where to start, I would suggest you start in the same way that the first disciples started with Jesus. He looked at them and he extended an invitation that simply was, come and follow me. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to be a church that remains centered on him. Help us to live lives that are centered on him. We thank you, Lord, just for the the fact that you still teach us, that you still shape us, that you still want to love this world through us. And I pray that you open our lives. Make us like you. We want to be your disciples, Father. So show us the way. Show us what it means and continue to give us wisdom and eyes to see all the ways that we can be centered in you as with one another as a church. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Real quick before you go, if you're new here, I'd love to meet you. I'm going to be over down here in this corner. I'd just love to shake your hand and say it's awesome to have you. For all of you guys, we'll see you soon.